Hello and welcome everybody again to joining us at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy here on Saturday, uh, September the 19th, live as we come to you with our newest topic of an explaining the faith called marriage, divorce, and annulments. Ooh, yeah, this is a harder topic that not most everybody wants to talk about. In fact, uh, you know, I know that I'm gonna get beat up, uh, I know, so I said, you know what, I'm gonna be ready. I even brought some protection here, so I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get beat up, I know this, but please understand, this is church teaching. I am not giving you any of my own opinion, and I know as I get pelted and beat up on these topics, please understand that I am not giving you my opinion, but that only of Christ and the scriptures, the church and the catechism, and canon law. So thank you, everybody. So just a little levity to begin the day. So as I said, let us begin with a prayer, as we all need prayers to bless our marriages and families. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and hearts to receive the grace you wish to bestow and the teaching with which you wish to give us. We ask for blessings upon all families and all marriages, those who are in this process of becoming engaged and getting married, and those, unfortunately, that who have ended. We ask that your blessing be with all of those involved. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so before I begin, I wanted to point out our next slide. This is all part, I'm going to be doing a continuation of our Explaining the Faith series. This is, um, this talk specifically is new, so it's not on our first set of CDs, but we'll be making new DVDs. I said CDs, I meant DVDs coming in the future, and um, you can receive these DVDs to play in your recorders or your players, uh, please visit shopmercy.org. Call us at 1-800-462-7426 or stream it at thedivinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. All right. <clears throat> so let us get started on this most important topic. You know, I should begin by saying I do a lot of research um, before every talk. I I go back through all my notes, I do my research, I, I read canon law, I read the catechism, the Bible, but I don't think I've ever would put more effort in for hours and hours as I did this week on this topic. Um, it's a huge topic, but I'm going to hopefully condense it for you so that you understand what marriage is um, and what divorce is, when it's allowed, when annulments are allowed, when they're not. Again, I can't emphasize enough, please don't kill the messenger. Please understand everything I'm giving you today is from church teaching. So let us begin. The Probably the best place for us to start is with the quote from scripture <clears throat> about what Jesus said regarding marriage and divorce. There's a couple places in the gospel. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 10, verse 2 through 10. Some Pharisees approached him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause whatever? He said in reply, Have you not read from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? 
and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. They said to him, then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another, he commits adultery. Wow, okay, this is a very tough teaching, but again, the words of Jesus. Let's unpack this for a while, and let's try to understand this. Let's start with our next slide. What is marriage? All right, we can have marriages in many forms. I come from a military family, so you see there's a, a good example of a beautiful marriage. What is it? All right, we just read that God created man in his image as male and female. This goes back to Genesis, right? 127. And he said the two become one flesh. We just read that. Marriage is a total commitment in love. What is love? Love is willing the good of the other, always wishing their good in all circumstances. It is a complete giving and receiving. It's not just giving. That's why many marriages fail, because there's no receiving. We need both that reciprocal giving and receiving for marriage to work. It's like the love within the Trinity, a complete giving and receiving. Now, don't worry. This whole talk is not going to be sitting here telling you that you shouldn't have gotten a divorce. That's not what I'm about to tell you today. I'm about to tell you what is maybe happening in our world, in our culture that is causing so many divorces and when the church does allow it, and when it doesn't. So again, please, nothing personal here. Um, let's keep going, though. That love being a complete giving and receiving um, is really a good example of why contraception is not allowed by the church. People don't understand that. Do you know up into the 1930s, every Christian church forbid contraception? Now only the Catholic Church is the last one that says that. Oh, Father, I can't handle that. I can't deal with that. Well, the reason why contraception is wrong is because it puts a barrier between that complete giving and receiving of love. In the marital act, I'm not completely giving of myself, if I'm a husband, to my wife because it's blocked. In the same way, the wife is not completely receiving if, 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 if there's that barrier of contraception, all right? You know, contraception in a way says, one spouse says to the other, you know, I love you, but I don't love you enough to have another one like you in the world. Well, but Father, we can't have another child right now. The church understands that. There are other things like natural family planning that can address those issues. That's a topic in another talk I'll be doing called Theology of the Body. So stay tuned. In the following few Saturdays, I'll be talking about sexuality and the human body and more on contraception called Theology of the Body. All right, anyway, here's the thing. Marriage is sacred, and it is elevated to the level of a sacrament. That's what St. Paul taught us in Ephesians 5. Okay, 
Paul said, boy, this is the priest's worst nightmare, right? When he has to teach on this on a Sunday homily with a full church. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I want you to stay tuned because I'm actually going to try to tackle that famous passage and explain to you. I can tell you, I bet you don't, I bet you don't know what, what it really, in the sense of what it really means, I bet it's something different than what you think it means. So stay with us, because at the end of this talk, I'm going to explain that. What does Christ mean, or Paul mean, when he says, wives, be submissive or subordinate to your husbands? It's not what you think. All right. Marriage, obviously, is a covenant. Remember, a contract is an exchange, exchange of goods, but a covenant is an exchange of persons. All right. And it's a covenant between a man and a woman which establishes a partnership for life. Now, for the baptized, if you are baptized, marriage is indissoluble and nobody can cancel that bond, not even the church. Well, Father, there's divorces in the church. We're going to get to that. So stay with us. All right. Civil divorce in the government or the, you know, the, the, the state affects the legality of marriage, but not the sacramental reality of marriage. So the church doesn't get involved in the civil legal aspect of marriage, but it does in church law. And that's what the sacrament of marriage is about. All right, there is a guy named Dietrich von Hildebrand, who I studied a lot in um, seminary, read his book, Transformation in Christ and Others. And he said that we should distinguish between the meaning of marriage, what's the meaning of marriage? Obviously love, and its purpose, the purpose of marriage, the three objectives of marriage. And those are, we'll get to in a minute, but marriage is one of the three major vocations. You know the other two, the single life and the consecrated religious life. Marriage is one of those huge vocation callings that most people are called to. Now, let's look at this. Let's put up our next slide. The three objectives of marriage that I just mentioned. All right, what are the three objectives of marriage? They are unitive, or excuse me, procreative, unitive, and get your spouse to heaven. Why? All right, let's start with procreation. When spouses conceive new life, they participate in God's creative power. We are to be procreative. That's one of the conditions for a valid marriage is that it's open to life. Unitive, the union, makes the husband and the wife become one flesh, as Jesus just said in the gospel we read. All right, this is Genesis 2.24. You know, I, um, I counsel a lot of marriage couples, and I do have to tell you this. Do you know that in every couple that I counsel, there's two things that I see that are lacking in every marriage that is failing and are present in every marriage that is succeeding. The two things are prayer and the conjugal act. In every marriage that I've seen that has failed, they were not praying together and they were not engaging in the marital act, the union, 
And in every marriage I see that is thriving, they are praying together and they are engaging in the marital act, union. All right, so now the third is to get your spouse to heaven. The ultimate love, this is the ultimate love because the love is defined as willing the good of the other and there's no greater good than getting your spouse to heaven, right? There is no way that these three things can't be our focus in a marriage or it's not gonna work. And so now those three things, this is interesting. I did a talk a few weeks ago. Do you know that's why Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven? Now, when I say that, some people are like, oh, and other people are like, yes. <laughs> there's no marriage, Jesus said in heaven, we'll be like the angels. Why? Because there's no, there's no need for those three things. There's no need to procreate because in heaven, everybody lives eternally. There's no need for the sexual union because again, there's no need to, to procreate and have more children. And also you'll have the perfect union with God himself. And then third, there's no need to get your spouse to heaven because once we die, we're either there or we're not. We can't change that. Now, those three things doesn't mean that we don't have a bond, a special bond with our spouses in heaven. You will. That's a beautiful gift. But that's the more importance of understanding the objectives of marriage. Now, let's go to our next slide. This is one of my favorite writers. This is Dietrich von Hildebrand. And I read his stuff. He's a great philosopher. And his wife, Alice, um, I read a lot of their work, had them in, in, uh, in courses in college. And I want to talk about their words about the meaning of marriage. Remember I said there's the meaning and then there's the purpose. The meaning of, of marriage is love and the purpose is procreative, unitive, and get your spouse to heaven. Now I'm going to read you a couple excerpts from what Alice, his wife, and Dietrich von Hildebrand wrote. So just stay with me here. I want to read some of these with you. There, there are a few paragraphs. A person truly in love wants to bind himself forever to his beloved, which is precisely the gift that marriage gives. In contrast, love without an unqualified commitment, you know, that commitment is marriage, betrays the very essence of love. He who refuses to commit himself or who breaks a commitment in order to start another relationship fools himself. He confesses, excuse me, he confuses the excitement of novelty with real happiness. Many people criticize marriage because they say it takes away freedom. They fail to realize that a person exercises his freedom when he freely binds himself to another in marriage. Doesn't that seem ironic? that you think you're free when you're not married, but actually he says you're actually freer when you are married because you bind yourself to someone in love. He said freedom is not the ability, remember this, freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want. That's license. Societies can't function with that. That means people could just kill at will or, or steal at will. It's not freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. As I said, that's license but the ability to do what you ought to do. And what you ought to do, they say, is give and receive love. Now, sometimes if your spouse is not reciprocating, that's not your fault, and we're gonna talk about that. We must bind ourselves through sacred vows so that the bond will be blessed by God and grant our love the strength necessary to face the difficulties of our human condition. This is really powerful. What they're saying is that when your love is sacred and blessed by God, you'll be given extra grace 
to weather the storm. All right, two small other paragraphs. In a relationship without sacred commitment, meaning without the marriage vows, sacramental, the slightest obstacle may be an excuse for separating. Unfortunately, man, who is usually so eager to win a fight over others, shows little or no desire to conquer himself. It is much easier for him to give up a relationship than to fight. Marriage calls each spouse to fight against oneself for the sake of his beloved. Pretty interesting. This is why it has become so unpopular today. People are willing to achieve the greatest of all victories, but not when it comes to victory over self. Isn't that amazing? People are not willing to achieve what is the greatest of all victories, victory over self. St. Paul, he went on to say, this is my last section, illuminated the dignity of sacramental marriage in calling it a great mystery. And he compared it to the love that Christ has for his church. Remember, who's the groom? Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. This is Ephesus, or Ephesians. Natural love pales in comparison. What is natural love? Love that is not put under the hand of God. Natural love pales in comparison to the beauty of a love rooted in Christ. How do we get that love rooted in Christ? The sacraments. As a sacrament, marriage gives people the supernatural strength necessary to fight the good fight. Every victory achieved together over habit, routine, or boredom cements the bonds existing between the spouses and makes their love produce fruit. Natural marriage has a love that is earthly, but sacramental marriage, that means the marriage in the church with God, has love that is supernatural. Sorry to bore you with all that reading, but if you listen to those words, it's incredible. Let's go on to the next slide. What are the types of marriage? There are two types of marriage based on what I just read. The first is a natural or an earthly marriage. It's like the justice of the peace or by the captain of a boat. That doesn't mean that marriage isn't valid. The church does not say that. A church says a natural marriage is very valid. If you get married at the justice of the peace, the church surprisingly to many people does not say that's invalid. It's valid. But it doesn't have the supernatural grace of your second one, the sacramental marriage. All right. What determines a natural marriage from a sacramental marriage? Believe it or not, it's nothing you do in preparation for the marriage. You know what it has everything to do with? If you're baptized or not. All right. To get a sacramental marriage or a natural marriage depends if you're baptized. Now, if one or both of the spouses are not baptized, the marriage is valid, but it is not sacramental. It is just natural or earthly. Now, as long as there's no impediments of the law, the marriage is still valid. So here the church recognized the marriage of non-Catholics as valid marriages in an earthly sense. 
Many people say the church doesn't recognize it because it wasn't in the church. That's not true. The church recognizes that marriage is an earthly or natural marriage. This applies to no matter how or where they were married, in a Baptist church or in the justice of the peace or on a ship out to sea. Thus, if they had previous marriages and now they want to marry someone in the Catholic church, they will actually need an annulment. This is surprising. I found this out personally firsthand. I was engaged to be married. I was going to be married to a wonderful girl in North Carolina, and she had a previous marriage. And I thought, well, gee, she wasn't married in the Catholic Church. I don't need an annulment. Well, actually, I would have, because she was baptized and married in the Baptist Church. So you see, the church recognizes this. So they actually need these annulments. Now, does the church say that these marriages can be dissolved? Well, no marriage in essence can be dissolved. Jesus just said they can't be. So we're going to look in a minute what an annulment says about a marriage that maybe didn't have all the elements of a sacrament. But for right now, if you have an unbaptized person, if one is unbaptized and later they want to become a Catholic, but they were married previously, they can get something called the Pauline privilege, which actually can dissolve the marriage of two persons if one was not baptized at the time of marriage. Now, if both were not baptized, there's something called the Petrine privilege or the privilege of faith. And this is where you can dissolve a valid natural marriage between a baptized and a non-baptized person. And I'm sorry, the Pauline was if you're both unbaptized, my mistake. So the Pauline is if you have both unbaptized. The Petrine is if one is unbaptized and one is baptized. All right, so... We're not going to get into that right now, but what we're going to do is we're going to jump <clears throat> to what is the sacramental marriage. All right. If you have two validly baptized people who get married that don't have any impediments, like, you know, they were only 11 years old or it was a shotgun wedding, those are impediments. As long as you don't have that and you have a validly marriage, uh, baptized people who were married, it is sacramental. You mean it's sacramental, Father, even if it's not in the Catholic Church? Surprisingly, yes. You mean if I, my, my cousin is Baptist and she got married to another Baptist in the Baptist Church, that's sacramental? Yes. All right, Father, wait a minute. If I have two baptized people and they get married at the justice of the peace, that is sacramental? Yes. Surprising, isn't it? Because it's all determined by baptism. So if you have two baptized people who get married, it is sacramental. This kind of marriage cannot receive a divorce based on the words of Jesus. Let no man separate what God has joined. So how do we explain all this? Okay, this is where it's going to get a little tricky, but stay with me. There is no such thing as a Catholic divorce. Okay, what happens is called a decree of nullity. We popularly refer to it as an annulment, but that's actually probably not the best way to say it. We should say decree of nullity, but for the sake of simplicity today, I'll be saying annulment. So what happens is an annulment is given to show that there was actually not marriage in the first place because there was some condition that didn't allow there to be a true marriage. An annulment shows that something needed 
was actually lacking at the time of marriage, and we're going to go through that. Now, there possibly also could have been an impediment, meaning like, you know, somebody was already married to somebody else, or they were under the age for a boy 16 or a girl 14. That's an impediment. That marriage isn't valid, all right? So even if there was an impediment, um, meaning that they, they, they weren't legally allowed to get married and, you know, by the church's def- definition. But that does not mean the children are illegitimate. I'm going to be talking about that. Don't worry. That does not, as I will explain later, mean your children are illegitimate, even though an annulment says that this marriage was not, was, did not properly occur. Your children are not illegitimate. Very important. If a non-baptized person are later baptized, so they had a natural marriage, and then later they are baptized, their marriage goes from natural to sacramental. Pretty powerful stuff, huh? All right, so let's get on now to the next slide. What makes a sacramental marriage? Father, you keep talking about the sacramental marriage. Well, what makes it? Before we get into divorce and annulments, it's important that I explain what the sacramental marriage is. Then you'll better understand what a divorce and an annulment do. All right. A number of elements must happen to come together for a valid sacrament of marriage to occur. All right. Let's go through this. Let's put up our first slide. The elements that must be present for a sacramental marriage, all right? The first is canonical form. That's just a big word meaning you're married in the church. You're married, if you're a baptized Catholic, you need to get married in the Catholic church. This isn't my opinion. This isn't me imposing my will upon you. Please understand, I'm just telling you what the church teaches, okay? But we're going to explain there's ways that you are, that you can help yourself and, and don't, don't, don't panic on me because, oh my gosh, Father, I wasn't married in the Catholic Church. There's ways we're going to help you to be able to, to get through that. All right. Now, basically canonical form just means getting married in the church. If one of the spouses is baptized Catholic, not even both, just one, the couple must marry in the church or have permission to marry somewhere else. Now, sometimes people say, well, Father, we're first going to get married in the Catholic Church, and then we're going to get married in the Baptist Church. Actually, sorry, but the church says we can't do that. You can't get married twice, because the marriage in a Baptist Church is actually valid. So if you get married first in the Catholic Church, you can't go get married again in the Baptist Church. It's not because the church is trying to be mean, but it's because we can't get married twice and the church recognizes that that Protestant wedding is valid. All right. This does not apply, though, for non-Catholics. We can't ask non-Catholics to be married inside the Catholic church when they're non-Catholics. So if a baptized Protestant gets married in his church, his marriage is still valid in the eyes of the Catholic church, as we said before. All right. If he marries another baptized person, it's sacri- it's a sacrament or a, a sacramental marriage. Their marriage would be a sacramental marriage, even if it was at the justice of the peace. Very surprising. All right, let's go back to the second of this list of elements that must be present. They must freely 
and knowingly choose it. All right? We can't have shotgun weddings or somebody marrying another person to get them citizenship. Neither is considered free consent. You have to freely consent. All right, the next one. They must understand about marriage, and this is interesting, that it is lifelong and open to children. A lot of people don't understand the commitment of marriage. You may be, have been in a marriage where your spouse was immature or didn't understand the first thing of what it meant to be the commitment of marriage. Therefore, you may have grounds for something that is not a sacramental marriage and therefore grounds for, for an annulment. All of these are grounds, if they're not present, are grounds for an annulment. I'm telling you what makes up a sacramental marriage. If any of these are not present, that means there's grounds for an annulment, meaning the marriage was not properly valid not meaning your children will be illegitimate. Again, I'll explain that. But there was something missing in the marriage at the time it took place that should have been there. That's what we're talking about right here. All right, number three, um, I just read that. Uh, they must be also open to children. Let's go to the next slide. All right, number four, they must intend fidelity to each other. This is a problem. Some people marry their spouses and have no intent in being faithful and monogamous. They continue affairs or relationships with other people, uh, physical. Number five, they must have the physical and psychological ability to follow through with their intentions. Sometimes people are not mentally capable of fulfilling the role of a spouse. And they dove into it maybe too quickly, and the church recognizes that. If somebody's been abusive to you, if somebody has been, has hurt you as, or treats you beyond human um, dignity, this means that there may not have been the mental and psychological capacity in that person to be your spouse. And therefore, that marriage really, truly didn't happen and wasn't meant to be. I think that's the case many fall into. All right, and then number six, the marriage must have been consummated, meaning the sexual act or the marital act happened, except in a Josephite marriage. This is like Mary and Joseph, where the, they go to the bishop, and now today they go to the bishop, Mary and Joseph didn't, but um, they live a life of pure chastity and celibacy. That's a different topic for a different time. All right, when you have all of these, these six things, you have a valid sacramental indissoluble union. This is what Jesus was talking about. So to summarize them all, they fall into three categories. The three things that you need present for a true valid marriage are the capacity to make the commitment, psychologically or physically. I have to have physical capacity to engage in the marital act. I have to have the mental capacity to treat my human spouse with dignity. Consent. The person must freely say yes and not be forced into it. And then finally, the first one, canonical form, married in the church. Do you realize that the Pope said that probably over 50% of Catholic marriages in the United States are invalid? The Pope said that. That probably over 50% of the Catholic marriages in the United States are invalid. Why? because they're not in the Catholic Church. Therefore, they're lacking canonical form, and therefore, they don't have the element of the sacrament. That would be grounds 
for a non-sacramental marriage. All right, so let's go to the next slide. How is marriage entered into? This is where it really gets fascinating. The husband and the wife enter into vows with each other, which are greater than promises. Why? Vows involve greater accountability and sacredness than promises. All right, what do I mean by that? All right, I might promise to cook you dinner every single night. I could say to you, you know, um, I'm going to cook you dinner every night. I promise. That's my promise to you. But sometimes, rarely, a certain circumstance might come up that I might have to break that promise. I might say, oh my gosh, um, my provincial wanted to meet with me tonight. I'm sorry, I can't cook dinner. But if I vow before God and others that I will love and honor you all the days of my life, and which is basically is what you do at a wedding, circumstances should never cause me to break that vow. I am held to a greater accountability by God and the community. That's what solemn vows, that's what vows are. Almost all cultures hold vows as sacred as compared to everyday promises. All right, they often involve visible signs of the vow, like rings, or for religious, sometimes you see them shave their head in a tonsure, they call it, like Friar Tuck, right? Um, vows are also a mirror of God's promises to us. Why are vows so powerful? Because God, they mirror God's promises to us through his covenants, sending Jesus Christ, his son, to earth, through the gospel, the institution of the church, God freely and deliberately committed to us. So our vows mirror that. So the Catholic marriage vows are based on this, a mirror of God's commitment. It's a declaration of consent. The priest will ask you three questions. If you remember back to the day, right? James and Janet. Have you come here to enter into marriage without coercion, freely and wholeheartedly? And you answer, I have, meaning free consent. He says, are you prepared as you follow the path of marriage to love and honor each other for as long as you both shall live? And you say, I have. And you say, are you prepared to accept children lovingly from God and bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church? And you say, I am or I have. That's the power of the vow. But we know certain, circum 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 certain circumstances get in the way. This is our next slide. What about this? Is a divorce allowed by the Catholic Church when all else has failed? Everything tried, Father, I've tried everything to reconcile. You talk about all this love and these vows. Father, my spouse is completely distant from me. He doesn't relate to me. He's not present to me. He's failed in his obligations to me. My spouse has abandoned me. You're telling me that my spouse abuses me? You're telling me the church says I have to live with this? Well, let's talk about that because it gets delicate. Do I need to put my crash helmet back on? <laughs> All right. Here's where it gets tricky because let's look at the next slide. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate, Matthew 19, 6. I don't know about you, but I don't want to battle the words of Jesus. Now, the church has found ways to accommodate those problems and still not violate the words of Jesus. You may not like the way the church does it, but let me tell you, the church has pushed as far as it could in protection of spouses who can't live together and still not violate the words of Christ. Christ's words are pretty firm there. It's almost like he's saying there's no circumstances. He says, nobody. He says, what God has joined together, no human being will celebrate. So what about the civil divorce? When the state recognizes that a couple is divorced by law, how does the church address that? All right. This does not affect the sacramental nature of the marriage. It affects the legal nature. That's a civil divorce. So there's still validity. Even after a civil divorce, there's still the, the, the validity of a marriage. Then why, Father Chris, did Moses allow divorce, like we read in the opening scripture passage? Why did Moses allow divorce? Remember, Jesus said that <clears throat> it wasn't always that way because of your hardness of heart. But he didn't explain fully, and I want to share with you why Moses did. It was to provide legal protection to the woman. So you see, there's precedent here that, that one of the spouses needed to get protection. Now, Jesus said it was because of your stubbornness. He didn't mean the victim. He meant the one who's not taking care of his spouse. So usually in a divorce, there's usually one person at fault. There's usually an innocent victim, and then there's usually one at fault. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be both guilty. Both could be guilty. But there's always one or both that are responsible. And Jesus said that here we have an innocent victim, the woman, who needed some legal protection. The Greek word apoloo, is translated divorce, actually means to relinquish a legal right. So the reason Moses allowed the divorce because if the husband was not going to take care of her, he should let go of his right to her. Now, when I say right, I'm not talking like she's property. This is just the way it was in first century Palestine, time of Christ, and, and back uh, earlier to Moses. This allowed another man to marry her and to provide for her. That was the way it was back then. Jesus showed that a divorce was allowed by Moses not to be part of God's original plan, but because of the stubbornness of the spouse who wasn't taking care of his other spouse or his spouse. So he's basically saying that divorce is only tolerated because of man's stubbornness and sin. So what Jesus is saying here is it wasn't God's plan to have it this way, but because one spouse isn't taking care of the other, Moses allowed it. And this is what the church is kind of get, getting into, involved in here. Do you know divorce? Let's talk about divorce for a little bit. Do you know the divorce rate in the United States is over 50% now? And do you know the Catholic rate of divorce is actually about the same as everyone else? That's really, that's really, yeah, it, it, we, we should reflect on that. I do want to tell you an interesting story that I came across in doing my research that one of my employees sent to me, said, Father Chris, you might want to mention this in your talk tomorrow as I was doing my research, and I found it fascinating. Let's pull up our next slide. This little town, I'm Croatian, 
And this is a town of 100% Croatian Catholics. It's called Soroki Brzeg, and it's in Bosnia, full of Croatian Catholics. Now listen to this. There's 26,000 people in this town. Look how beautiful that town is, the beautiful Blue River and the beautiful church there. Do you know in the history of this town, they've never had a divorce? It's actually documented. It's the only divorce-free town in the world. They're 100% Catholic. Now, this is interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, listen to what they do at the wedding ceremony. I think this is fascinating. At the wedding ceremony, the priest blesses a crucifix presented to him by the bride and the groom. So the husband and the wife, they bring a crucifix on their wedding day. He places the bride's right hand upon the crucifix, the priest, then that of the groom's hand over her hand and covers both their hands with a stole. Then the couple makes their vows with their hands clasping the crucifix. Now listen to this. This is really interesting. The priest then tells them that they have found their ideal partner. Now it's not all sun and joy here. Listen to this. They have found their ideal partner with whom they must share their lives with the following words. You have found your cross. <laughs> it is a cross that you must bear, love, and take with you every day of your life. Know how to appreciate you, or excuse me, to appreciate it because your cross will get you to heaven. Remember, I just said one of the three objectives of marriage is to get your spouse to heaven. They then kiss it and put it up in their home, showing their belief that a family must be born of the cross. Very interesting, isn't it? But Father, you're still not covering the fact that I've tried everything, everything, and it's just not working. All right, we're getting there. But the first thing I have to cover, though, is what about divorce? Is divorce a sin? Let's go to our next slide. So, is divorce itself a sin? Many say that divorce is not the sin. Father, it's marriage with remarriage without an annulment. And in one sense, that is very true. My sister is a perfect example. I want to tell you a little bit more about her in a minute. So, is divorce itself a sin? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. What do I mean by that? Catechism 2384 says, divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. Please don't beat me up here. I'm reading directly from the catechism. Divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. It does injury to the covenant of salvation. The church says that divorce can add to the gravity of an existing rupture because like children are affected and things like that. 2385 in the catechism says divorce is immoral also because it introduces disorder into the family and into society. This disorder brings grave harm 
to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by the separation of their parents, and because <clears throat> of its contagious effect, which takes, which makes it truly a plague on society. Wow, that's harsh. Those are some pretty strong words, but that's the catechism of the Catholic Church. That is not me, that's not my opinion, okay? But let's qualify this. If you just read that by itself and you are unfortunately a victim of divorce, you might really be feeling bad right now. I don't want you to. I want you to keep listening, okay? Now, this is harsh, yes. But Jesus says in verse 9 that God has joined what God has joined that no man put asunder. So based on that verse plus the catechism passage I just read, we can come to the conclusion that Divorce really may be sinful in and of itself. However, I emphasize however, one spouse may be innocent. Maybe you are completely innocent. They tried to save everything, but were abandoned. In those cases, there is no sin. Let's talk about this. Next slide. Paragraph 2686. Let's read this. It can happen that <clears throat> one of the spouses, now this also comes from the catechism. It can happen that one of the spouses is the innocent victim of a divorce decreed by civil law. This spouse therefore has not, I emphasize, has not contravene the moral law. That means you have not sinned. There is a considerable difference between a spouse who has sincerely tried to be faithful to the sacrament of marriage and is unjustly abandoned and the one who through his own grave fault destroys a canonically valid marriage. Wow. I think that's important. You know, my sister, I use as an example, God bless my sister. For 24 years, she was a faithful wife and her husband, after 24 years of marriage, abandoned her for another woman. After he abandoned her for another woman, my sister said, oh my gosh, I am guilty of the sin of divorce. No, you're not. I love my sister. There's no way God could hold my sister accountable for that divorce. She was traumatized, she was victimized, and she was put through, let's face it, hell, I'm sorry. And, 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 and we've both forgiven him, we pray for him. But that doesn't mean she has to carry the burden of guilt. She's an innocent victim, all right? So when is divorce allowed? The answer is when we have an innocent victim. Let's read the next slide. Paragraph 2383 of the Catechism. If civil divorce remains the only possible way of ensuring certain legal rights, the care of children, or the protection of an inheritance, it can be tolerated and does not constitute a moral offense. Okay? Now, guess what I found in canon law last night? Um, canon number 1153, paragraph one, listen to this. 
If either of the spouses causes grave mental or psychological danger to the other spouse or to the offspring or otherwise renders common life too difficult, that spouse gives the other a legitimate cause for leaving. Now, personally, I think if you read further in canon law, it's talking about a separation. The church does teach that you should first get permission from the bishop for a separation and then try to pray that things will work out. So now if we have these types of situations, this begs the next question. Can I receive Holy Communion after a divorce? If divorce is not necessarily a sin, as I just read, we do know that marriage without an annulment is. So there's more on that coming up. But indeed, innocent divorced people can receive Holy Communion. Those who cannot are those who are remarried without an annulment. You know, my sister, I'm going to go back to her. God bless her. Do you know that I found out after her divorce that my sister wasn't receiving Holy Communion? She said, well, the church teaches I'm divorced. I can't receive Holy Communion. I went, oh, Pam, God bless you. Your heart is so big but you can go to Holy Communion. She's like, what? No, the church says I'm divorced. I can't go to Holy Communion. No, Pam, you're the victim. You can go to Holy Communion. You were not the cause of that divorce. Now her ex-spouse, although he caused the, the, because he caused the divorce, now he probably shouldn't go to Holy Communion until he's been to confession and he's tried to reconcile back to the church. You see the difference here? All right. Both parties may be guilty of the sin of divorce, or maybe only one, but usually someone is. So canon law, as I said, says best to probably get permission to separate first. Now, the catechism does say that if that doesn't work, then divorce could be allowed, but only for protection like legal rights, or I think in extreme abuse cases, things like that. Now, some people point out, what about unchastity, Father? Doesn't in one of the scripture passages Jesus say, or the case of unchastity, people always take that to mean my space was unfaithful. Actually, unchastity means an invalid marriage, not adultery. And so an invalid marriage is this whole thing we've been talking about, those six conditions that I said that make a marriage valid that I just put up on the slide about 10 minutes ago. In this case, these people should split anyway because they weren't validly married to begin with. All right, now, let's get into the tricky parts. What if you don't feel the love for the person anymore? Is that a valid reason for divorce? Let's say everything else, there's no major abuse or, or, or problems, but you just don't feel in love anymore. Is that a valid reason? Actually, please don't beat me up. Actually, the church says no. Wow, Father, that's hard. Well, as I said in my promo video, love is not just an emotion the church teaches. Thomas Aquinas tells us that love is an act of the will. I choose to love you. Emotions go up and down. If we were to, to, to end every relationship when our emotions went down, I'd never talk to my parents again. If I was to go on every time an emotion went up or down and then when it hit the down, I would never talk to my best friend again. Because you're going to have those pitfalls. 
They're going to go through, especially in the pandemic, the, the issues of, of, of emotions are going up and down like, like a seismograph. But remember, the choice to love your spouse, to will their good, is your responsibility to death do you part. That's where sometimes it gets hard, I realize that. But even if your feelings change, and even if you can't live with them, you can still pray for them and have that act of the will for their good. All right? Jesus teaches discipleship is not to include concessions for sinfulness, like I want to go with someone else. Just the fact that you want to go with someone else doesn't give us the right to do that. I know it's hard. We may feel that way. Jesus shows marriage is between a man and a woman for life. Those aren't my words. It's the gospel. And Genesis, the book of Genesis even says that. So the ideal is to focus on the beauty of marriage rather than only on divorce, divorce here. Jesus, now, one of the things he did is he restored to its original purity the dignity of man and woman in marriage. This is what Jesus did. Instituted by God at the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. Therefore, divorce is excluded and remarriages become adultery, Jesus said, unless it's unlawful. This is the one thing that we have to get in mind. I'm going to show that in a minute. But Father, again, what do I do? I can't, I, this marriage can't go on. Okay, again, the church gets that, and maybe you actually have a non-valid marriage. Maybe your marriage never really did exist in the first place. Now, we pray that's not the case. You should always pray that, that marriage works. Every marriage is assumed to be valid unless it, the annulment process, the decree of annullity, proves it otherwise. So let's talk about this. Father, let's look at our next slide. Am I able to get an annulment? Again, I'm using the word annulment synonymous with decree of nullity, which is more proper term. All right. But here is what we have to ask ourselves. Let's go to the next slide. All right. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here's the key words. These are the words of Jesus. Unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another, commits adultery. That's Matthew 5.32. So this is the key word. What does unlawful mean? It means that the marriage didn't follow the legal requirements, church legal now, not civil legal, for a valid marriage. Here's the important thing. Remember, an annulment is not a Catholic divorce. There is no such thing, but rather an official statement that at least one of the requirements that I put up on the screen, those six things, for a valid sacramental marriage were not present at the time of the marriage. So if you remember those six things, somebody's not open to life. You got married and that person never agreed to be open to life. That's one of the conditions for marriage missing. Somebody doesn't have the psychological or physical capacity to engage in the union, like the marital act, impotency. Um, that's a grounds that the marriage was never valid or that it, there was not free consent. You held a shotgun 
to the spouse that you're now married to and she's scared to death and says, yes, okay, I'll marry you. That's not a valid marriage. If any of those things existed, and there were six of them I listed, then you may not have a valid marriage. It wasn't present at the time of the wedding. Something that should have been present wasn't. So a valid Catholic sacramental marriage can be dissolved if one of those requirements is not present, even if the civil government says you are divorced. So if they are all present, you can't separate. It can't be dissolved. If all of those things that I listed on those, those number six things, if they're all present, the marriage can't be dissolved. Jesus says, unless it's unlawful. That means if one of those six things I listed are not present, then it's not lawful. And that means there wasn't a valid marriage to begin with. Now, remember, what were those six things? Just to refresh your memory for the sacrament or the sacramental marriage that you got married within the church if you were baptized Catholic, all right? When you, or you married another baptized Christian that you freely consented, right? That you understood what marriage is, that you were open to life, that you had the tent to be faithful from the beginning, that you had the psychological and physical ability to carry out the duties of marriage, like the marital act. If any one of these are missing, you may have grounds for an annulment. This is important. Now, an annulment or a decree of nullity again acknowledges that until the annulment is given, marriage is assumed to be valid. That's why any children that come from your union are not illegitimate. All marriages are, uh, uh, are, are marriages that are assumed to be valid until the decree comes that this marriage is invalid, it is assumed that it is valid. So your children who were born before the annulment were born under the idea that this marriage was valid. And they are not illegitimate. It's one of the big misconceptions. Now, do you know this is interesting? 94% of petitions for annulments in the U.S. are granted. 94%. John Paul actually called it into question. He thought it actually was way too many. Do you know the United States that we only have 6% of the world's Catholics, right? There's, there's um, <clears throat> in the world, there's a billion Catholics and there's 60 million Catholics in the United States, right? We're about 25% of the population. We're the main religion in the United States. There's 350 million so um, we're about 60 million Catholics. That means 60 million out of a billion were 6% of the Catholics. But do you know that we account for 70% of the annulments worldwide? So only 6% of the Catholics in the U.S. get 70% of the annulments. I thought that was interesting. Do you know in uh, just a few years ago, I haven't gotten updated numbers, but back in 2006, in the U.S., there were 27,000 marriages that were declared null. Do you know how many there were in 1968? 338. Wow. Let's pray. 
Let's pray for our families, our marriages. So that's why I want to go to the next slide. A declaration of nullity, or what I've been calling an annulment, is not the dissolving of an existing marriage, but rather a determination that consent was never given by either spouse, and thus a marriage never existed. Consent can be lacking due to different factors that I just read to you, like you're trying to marry somebody to gain citizenship or it's a shotgun wedding, but it also can be deceit. If you married somebody that totally lied to you, that they were a totally different person, they were living a double life, like we hear these spouses all the time that, Father, oh my gosh, I found out that my husband was leading a completely double life. He was, um, you know, uh, uh, procuring uh, homosexual prostitutes and had this other family and was doing all this. That That's deceit. And that actually means you didn't give free consent because you didn't know the whole truth. It's actually grounds for non-sacramental marriage and therefore an annulment or a decree of nullity. Even if you don't plan to remarry. Now, this is interesting. This came to me realization talking to an employee yesterday. And I confirmed it with our provincial. Do you know my sister who got the divorce, she never went to get the annulment because she said, well, I'm not going to remarry. I'm not going to get an annulment because I don't plan on remarrying ever. I don't need an annulment. And at first, here I'm the priest. And at first I said, well, yeah, you're right. But it took an employee to point out to me, and then I confirmed it with my superior, that there's actually more to it. You know, you probably might want to pray on maybe getting that annulment anyway, even if you don't plan on remarrying. Why? Because it frees you from that spiritual bond that still exists between you and that person, because it's never been declared not a marriage. So in the spiritual realm, you have still have that spiritual bond, and that spiritual bond could be helping or hurting you. So you might, if you really feel it's important to break free, you might want to consider getting that annulment. And you know what else? In the case of my sister, this is public knowledge, so I'm not revealing anything that's private, but her ex-husband went and married another woman outside the church. He's living with her. Technically, he's committing the sin of adultery against my sister because he's still married to her technically. So I said, I'm going to talk to my sister and say, you know, you might want to consider getting the annulment to actually help free him from that extra sin. Now it's still fornication. He's still having relations with this woman, not being validly married, but at least you could take out the sin of adultery if you get the annulment because fornication is where you have Relations between non-married people, but adultery is where you have relations with a married person. And technically, he's still married to my sister. So we might want to consider getting that annulment to free that extra burden. I mean, that would be an act of charity. I'm not saying that you have to. I'm just saying pray on that. Pray on that. Very interesting. Um, you know, even if you don't plan, you may want to get that annulment to loosen the bonds. Um, now, remember, what about this? Father, I can't get an annulment. My ex-spouse will absolutely be furious. Well, actually, technically, your ex-spouse does not have to agree to be part of the annulment process. The annulment process can continue even if your spouse is completely uncooperative. It doesn't matter. 
It helps, but your ex-spouse does not have to agree with the annulment process. It will still move forward. Now, I've been talking about all the marriages today that are valid. Well, Father, then, then, then what do you talk about all these other marriages? Well, all the marriages that are either natural or, or sacramental are, are assumed to be between a man and a woman. That's what Christ says in the Gospels. That's what Genesis says. So any marriage that is non-monogamous, in other words, polygamy, people with multiple wives, or non-heterosexual marriages, which are not marriages, or non-human spouses like animals, crazy, I know, but people are marrying dogs and different things. These are not even an invalid marriage. They're not even a marriage at all. This is an invalid attempt at marriage according to the natural law, so no annulment is even needed because there's not even a marriage to declare null. There's, it's not even, it's not even, it didn't even reach that point. So this is, this is another important thing. All right, so the two things that make a marriage valid, if you want to boil it down, are, I should say three, are consent, meaning you did it willingly, capacity, meaning you had the ability, psychological maturity, to do it, and that you had proper form, or you followed the law, meaning you were married in the church. I know this is a lot, and God help us all to understand this, but it does make sense if you think about it. All right, now let's go back and let's go to the next slide. The next slide are what are the impediments to getting married? All right, so these are two full slides, stay with me. Now, sometimes a person enters into a marriage with full consent that I just said was a requirement and they had proper form. They got married in the church and they had the right capacity. They were mentally fully capable of fulfilling the obligation of a marriage and treating their spouse with respect. But there is something in their background that makes the marriage not possible. It's called an impediment. If any of these exist, pretty much the annulment is a rubber stamp because the, the marriage should never have happened in the first place. Let's put them up on the screen. These are called impediments to marriage. So let's look at this. One, one or both of the parties is below the minimum age of 16 for males or 14 for females. Wow, that seems kind of low to me, but okay, that's what the church teaches. Two, impotence meaning that the male is not able to physically engage in the marital act, meaning he can't actually even do the act. This is different than being sterile. Sterile means you can do the act, but you can't produce children. That's acceptable. But impotence, if you marry a spouse and they didn't tell you they were impotent, and then you found out on the marriage night that they were completely impotent, that means there was an impediment to marriage that you were not told about and therefore grounds that the marriage didn't, didn't happen. All right, number three, being already married. This could be deceit. You could be told by somebody, I wanna marry you, honey, and you get married and then you find out, oh my goodness, he was married prior. That's an impediment. You can't get married if you were married before. All right, what about one party is Catholic and the other hasn't been baptized? Unless you get permission that is an impediment. You have to, as a baptized Catholic, marry somebody who's baptized. Now, they don't have to be Catholic. You can marry a Baptist, but they have to be baptized. 
All right. The next one, number five, the man was um, ordained to holy orders. That means that as a priest, I cannot go marry somebody if I'm in holy orders. Now, somebody said, well, what about that priest on Fox News, Father? He got laicized. If the priest gets laicized and removed from his vows or his, his ordination, then yes, he can do that. Uh, not good, I don't think, but, but nonetheless. All right, let's go to the next slide. Number six, these are the impediments. Either party made a public perpetual vow of chastity in a religious institute. So I have a double thing there. I've also made vows, perpetual vows of chastity. So I cannot get married. I have an impediment to getting married. It's probably a good thing for most ladies out there. <laughs> All right. Number seven, impediment of crime. What does that mean? That means that if you brought about the death of your spouse or the spouse of another so that you could marry them, that would be like the guy killing the spouse of a woman so that he could marry her. That's a huge impediment. All right, last two are two big words, consanguinity, that's basically incest. Can't marry somebody of blood relation. And then surprisingly, an interesting one is affinity, number nine, where you can't marry someone who's related to you by marriage closely. Like, for instance, if a man um, marries a woman who has a daughter from a previous marriage and all of a sudden he gets divorced from her, he can't marry the daughter because he's already been married to the mother and affinity says there's too close a relationship even though it's by marriage and not by blood. So consanguinity is by blood, affinity is by marriage. All right, let's keep going here. So the church basically wants to make sure that a person does it the right way, that he has full consent and he follows the law or the form of the church by getting married in the Catholic church. But the church also wants to ensure that people are able to enter into a marriage bond, that they don't have these impediments, like they were only 10 when they got married. Those, those laws, those, those marriages aren't valid either. So let's go through this. Why is it that the church does that? Because the next slide, the family is a mirror of the Trinity. That is why we do this. The family is the mirror of the Trinity. And this is what I said in my preview video the other day. Because, you know, um, we know we have a God that is one. We have one God, but our God is in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that, you know, the highest element of anything that we can do is love. And I always like to ask my catechism class, hey guys, if you are the only person that ever existed... Nobody else ever existed, just you. Could there be love? And the answer is no. In order to have love, you need a community of persons. And who is God? God is love. Well, wait a minute. If God was the only person who ever existed there, and he was for a long time, could there be love? Well, no, only if there was one person. But God is three persons. That's why God is a trinity. Because there has to be a, a, a community of persons to share love. St. Augustine tells us this. Father, you're making this up. No, I'm not. This comes from Augustine. St. Augustine says 
that in the Trinity we have the perfect love between persons. You have the Father, God the Father, the lover. You have God the Son, the beloved. And the love between them is so great that from it proceeds a third person. The third person, the child. So in that picture, look at the family. Who is the family? Let's pull that slide back up. That family is the, the mirror. Oh, did we lose it? Okay, we're down. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, I, I didn't know if we got cut off from our live stream. Um, but the family is the mirror of the Trinity. You have the husband, the lover, the son, the, or excuse me, the husband, the lover, the wife, the beloved. And the love between them is so great that from it comes a third person, the child. This is what makes our faith so beautiful. All right, now. Let's keep going here, and I want to wrap up. So anyway, this is the Holy Family. With the Holy Family, we see God wanting to live within the human family. This is the revelation of God's will in the Christian married couples to take it seriously. Remember, Lucia said the final battle between God and Satan will be over marriage and the family. So it's not too late. Put yourself right. Go see your priest. Talk to your priest. Ask him how I can make it right. Do I need my marriage blessed? Do I need it convalidated? Which just means you were married, but it wasn't in the church. And now you want to get right with the church. That's called convalidation. Go back. Go to confession. Get an annulment if you have to. Have these things done. A couple can renew their vows at another church. But you can't get remarried at another church. Just get married in that Catholic church. Remember, go see your priest. He can help you. Send you to the bishop. This is why God set it up as a beautiful gift of all, all Christians, but especially us in our Catholic faith. The beautiful gift of marriage. All right, I want to finish now with the most famous passage that every priest shudders from when he's told this. And I want to I give this example because this is a beautiful example of something that's misunderstood in the church. Let's look at our next slide. Wives, be subordinate to your husbands. This is interesting because every priest shudders when he has to talk about this. Let's listen to Ephesians 5, verse 21 to 25. Be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ, meaning the husband and to the wife and the wife to the husband. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church, he himself the savior of the body. As the church, however, is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. But husbands, love your wives, even to the point of death, as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her. So, I want to tackle this because I think it's beautiful, and I know I'm running out of time, but if the husband is the head in the marriage, which it just said, for the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church, how can there be true equality? All right, the Greek word for head is kapphale, which doesn't mean boss. It means one who brings fulfillment. And we're getting close here. This is the same word used to describe Christ as head of the church, which is his body. The head and the body are one, like the unity of husband and wife. They depend on each other for fullness. So the word kapphale doesn't mean boss, 
It means to bring fullness. Now, men, be careful here. You can't exploit this passage. I remember my dad used to elbow my mom in church when they would read, wives, be submissive to your husbands. He's getting it wrong. He's missing it. You got skin in the game too, men. Because Paul says, men, love your wives to the point of death as Christ loved the church. And so husband and wife are really subject to each other. That was the first line in the passage. Be subject to each other, just in different ways. A wife subjects herself to her husband by accepting his role as the head. What does that mean? It means that she cooperates with him in filling that role of service to her and her children. Now, the husband, in return, subjects himself first to God and then by his, to his wife by accepting her need for love and to care for her to the point that he would give his life. So this is mutual subjection. It's not slavish. This is what the church teaches. Now, Ephesians 5.21 says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here the husband this is important, signifies Christ and the wife signifies the church. So the woman, when it says to subject yourself to your husband, what does it mean? It means submit to husband in his role as Christ. But then the husband as Christ has submit to his role as Christ did to the church, his bride. So the husband submits to his wife like Christ did the church, his bride. Women should submit to like the church to Christ because she is like the church. And men should sacrifice like Christ for the church. This is beautiful. So headship of the husband is not about worldly power or degradation of the wife. God created both male and female so they have different but complementary and equal roles. Today, we don't have that anymore. There's no more male or female functions. They're completely wiping that out. Everything's gender neutral and everyone should have the same role. There isn't. This isn't true. Men and women are different but equal. You know, I used to watch the shows. My three favorite shows were Everybody Loves Raymond, Home Improvement, and The Simpsons. Back in my former days before being a priest, I loved those three shows until later I realized, you know what all three of those have in common? They're making the buffoon out of the husband, the father. He's the idiot. And everybody loves Raymond, Home Improvement, and The Simpsons, and every one of them. The father isn't the leader. He's not the head. And this is, to me, kind of the destructive way society today wants to destroy the nuclear family. What are the movements in some of these protests are to destroy the written manifesto of some of these organizations in, in, in charge of this anarchy are saying, destroy the nuclear family, destroy the patriarchy. This is the way God set it up. Who are we to destroy what God established? This leads to chaos and not ordering in, in, in marriage or in society when there's no family leader. That's not the case. Now, an example that I want to give to finish with is what I equate, I read this once a long time ago, and I'm sorry I don't give credit to where credit is due, but a long time ago I read a comparison of marriage to ballroom dancing. Now, this is amazing because in ballroom dancing, there's no true leader, I'm sorry, if there is no true leader, it won't work. Let's watch this 15-second clip, and please watch both 
the man and the woman in this clip. Okay, so in that clip, the leading, the man was doing the leading in the dancing, but that was only one function. Following the woman was a different but equal and as important function. It is reciprocal or complementary. One isn't better than the other. They are both needed. Both the husband and the wife are subject to Christ like the man and the woman in that video were subject to the music. A woman can't submit, though, however, men, if you're stepping all over her toes during the dance. So, men, you have to let the woman be herself. The man can't step all over the woman's toes. Now, in a marriage, a woman can't also submit if that abusive husband doesn't follow the music. How can you be men out there if you're not following the music of God, your wife can't follow? And so this is important. In the same way, men, you can't lead if your wife is pushing you all around the dance floor, ladies. <laughs> all right? So in marriage, the husband can't lead the family with a perpetually uh, just domineering wife who doesn't allow him to lead and vice versa. The wife can't follow if the husband is perpetually abusive. They have to work together. Both need to let the Holy Spirit lead them in faith like the music led the couple in the dance. Otherwise, there can be no dance and no Christian marriage. If you choose marriage like that dance, the husband accepts the responsibility to lead and the wife to follow. One is not better than the other. It's, it's, it's powerful. As we read here, we must live as God wills, not as we will. So I want to finish by saying the Catholic Church is not anti-women. You know, it's, it's, a, it's equality. Um, Jesus loved women. He befriended women. In fact, many supported him in his ministry. A cloistered nun is actually a higher calling than a diocesan priest. Not based on that he can do the mass. Of course, that's the highest. But in the way of life. Because, because that calling is higher. She can't be a priest only because the priest is in persona Christi and Christ was a man, has nothing to do with a woman being inferior. In fact, again, a cloistered nun is a higher calling. All right? Jesus also followed the rules of the family that God gave. Now, do you remember the Holy Family? Who was the most important? Jesus. Who was next important? Mary. Who was least important? Joseph. But who was the head of the, of the holy family? Joseph. Because by virtue of being the father, the husband, this is what we have to say. Now, Pope John Paul II said, authentic love requires that a man have profound respect for the equal dignity of his wife. You are not her master, but her husband. She was not given to you to be your slave, but your wife. Reciprocate her attentiveness to you and be grateful for her love. That was John Paul II. The catechism says, for if the man is the head, the woman is the heart. And as he occupies the chief place in leading, she ought to claim for herself the chief place in love. All right, so the last couple of comments. 
But if a husband is not a husband who lays down his life for his bride and puts her ahead of himself, he has no business pointing to that passage saying, be submissive to me because he has skin in the game. And when wives are told to be subject to their husbands, it has nothing to do with status. Two persons can be equal in status, but subordinate one to the other. Look at the Trinity. Were the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equal? Yes, they were. But the Son subordinated himself to the Father. That doesn't mean he was inferior. That's not what the church means when it says that passage in, infinite, in, in Ephesians. In the Trinity, all three were equal, but the Son was subordinated to the Father and the Holy Spirit was subordinated to the Son. All right, God bless you all. You know, sub, mission, sub means under. Doesn't mean less than. So submission means putting yourself under your husband's mission. And what's your husband's mission? You remember the three objectives of marriage? Get your spouse to heaven. So your husband, this is true love, is on a mission to get you to heaven. And you have to follow in that mission. That's not a bad thing. It means allowing him to serve you as head of your household. That service is for protection, not domination, men. You don't dominate. It's like the Secret Service. What is their job? Their job is to protect the president, not to dominate him. It's the same in marriages. So wives, give your husbands a chance. If he fails, then you take over. And some of you, I'm sure many of you, have had to do that. God bless you. And may the grace of Almighty God help you in that endeavor. But you might find, given your support, your husband will lead. We pray for them. And maybe, just maybe, your family will flourish. You know, most situations come that are hard to understand why a family didn't work out. But by the grace of God, the spouse remaining can do everything they can to make it work. My heart goes out to every one of you spouses who has made it work with or without your other spouse. And we pray that all marriages that are struggling right now may be brought into the graces of God and be healed. And that's why I want to show you the last two slides. If through all this stress of daily life, you have any problems, I want you to show you the national domestic hotline. If in any way you are a victim of abuse, or an abusive spouse or significant other, please, 1-800-779-7233 is the word safe. Give them a call. They can help you. Or text Love Is to 22522 to get the help you need. Or online you can chat at thehotline.org if you are the victim of abuse. We pray you aren't. We pray that there would be healing if you are. And you know what? Father, you know, I'm not a victim of abuse, but my marriage really is in trouble. It's just the love seems lacking. We're not praying together. We're not staying together. We're doing our own thing. We don't communicate anymore. I don't even see my spouse much. Or maybe in the pandemic, you see him too much. That's our last slide. The USCCB has put up some marriage help. It's called foryourmarriage.org. This is sanctioned by the church, a beautiful ministry for resources for a happy and holy marriage. So please visit foryourmarriage.org to get these resources. So you know what, everybody? Thank you for joining me. I apologize again I went long. I'm going to start trying after this to start 
chopping these times down. But God bless you. I'm trying to give you the entire teaching of the church on some of the most important topics. And I thank you for your patience. So God bless all of you. And for all the marriages out there or those who are struggling trying to survive with a failed marriage or a marriage, excuse me, not failed, but a marriage that has been dissolved, we pray for you. And we ask that you remain strong in your faith. And may Almighty God bless all of you and marriages in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and God bless you. Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian fathers celebrate a mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the divine mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the shrine of divine mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you want to learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign-up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.